Hi, welcome back to the horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And we're back together again. We are sitting in the same room at the same table. We are looking each other in the face. We are plugged into the same audio interface. We just got our sound back, y'all. We're so excited. (laughs) And yeah, I think the occasion is joyous for that reason. And because we're talking about prom. Prom night. We love prom. And everything is not all right. In these movies. <laughs> no. Two franchises today, four classic movies. We're going to be talking about the original Carrie from 1976 and the remake from 2013. And the original Prom Night, which honestly I had never heard of before right. from 1980, starring Jamie Lee Curtis. And the Prom Night remake which I have heard of. I didn't realize it was a remake starring Britney Snow from 2008. It can barely be called a remake. Let's be honest. <laughs> there were parts about it that I enjoyed, but there were also parts about it that I knew were not good. But we'll get to those parts. Yeah, so this is going to be an episode very akin to our Puritan Ladies episode, where we're going to hit you with a bunch of context about prom, its traditions, its histories, <laughs> And then we're going to walk through some of the movies. We're going to focus primarily on the originals, A, because they're better, and B, (laughs) because they really, like, set the precedent of what, like, school dance horror kind of really looks Mm -hmm. like. Mm -hmm. And then we'll kind of be talking about how the remakes retouched and perhaps... Revitalized. Revitalized. That's the word I was looking for, what prom night horror looks like and what it's saying more about the 2010s versus the 1970s, which is the context that both of our original films take place in. Let's get into it. Let's do it. We start with some information about what the heck even is prom, because it's been tradition for so long. Do we ever really think about what prom is? So essentially, I did some digging. This little bit here is from our favorite Wikipedia. So proms short for promenades, (laughs) (laughs) worked their way down incrementally from college gatherings to high school extravaganzas. In the early 20th century, prom was a single tea dance where high school seniors wore their Sunday best. In the 1920s and 1930s, prom expanded into an annual class banquet where students wore party clothes and danced afterwards. As Americans gained more money and leisure time in the 1950s, proms became more extravagant and elaborate, bearing similarity to today's proms. The high school gym may have been an acceptable setting for a sophomore dance, but junior prom and senior balls gradually moved to hotel ballrooms and country clubs. Competition blossomed as teens strove to have the best dress, the best mode of transportation, and the best-looking date. Competition for the prom court also intensified as the designation of prom queen became an important distinction of popularity. In a way, prom became the pinnacle event of a high school student's social life. So tell me about your prom. Was yours one of these like off-campus events with aquariums and disco balls and crazy DJs? Like what was yours like? Mine was not like that at all. Right. Where I went to school, we had one annual prom. It was a junior-senior prom. Mm -hmm. You could go to more than one prom if you were invited by a junior or senior. But we had no prom court and it was in our gym. It was kind of lame just because a lot of neighboring school districts had their proms at really neat venues. 
but our gym at the time was pretty good. It was big, it could fit everybody. It made sense because we had one prom. I don't know what venue we would have been able to find that would fit everybody with two grades together. So it ended up working out. The years I went, we didn't do a sit down dinner. We just had a lot of hors d'oeuvres. We still had tables, it was dancing, no prom court, like I said. This definition is interesting because since prom was so close to where we all lived, it was at our high school, we took the transportation very seriously. Mm. So people really did invest in the limos and decorating certain vehicles or arriving in like horse-drawn carriages because everything, it was so close. You only had to rent these things for a very short period of time. It It was much more affordable. Right. But yeah, that's what I had. What about you? So we had two different proms, a junior designated prom and a senior designated prom. The junior designated prom was in our gymnasium, but the senior designated prom was at a country club. I like that. I I think that's really nice. I think it gave a different designation and Mm -hmm. a different, obviously, air of importance, an air of a chapter closing, which is very evident in our prom night remake. They really did well in hearkening that focus in on like the end of an era and things of that nature. So I did not go to my senior prom, but I was dating a senior when I was a junior. Ah. So I did attend a junior and a senior prom, but then I did not attend my own senior prom because I thought like I already had like really dry ass chicken parm (laughs) and I'm not dating anybody. I don't need to go through this again. I was over the dress thing, the pictures and the pageantry. I was just like fucking over it. But yeah, so it was a little more elevated, but not to the degree of some of the things we saw in like the prom night remake. Like I was pissed off the entire time at all of these Did you do prom court? Oh, no, we did not do prom okay. court, mm-hmm. but we, I think we had the akin of replacing prom court with two other gender specific traditions. So okay. we had a thing called like senior sweetheart and then oh. a Mr. High school I went to. That was more of a congeniality contest in place <laughs> of prom court, but we did have homecoming court. I am a teacher and I, in recent years, have had a lot of discussions with people about their proms. Just because I'm a class advisor this year and I did help throw the junior prom for the school I teach at this year. So prom's been on my mind, y'all. It's been on my mind. I've been living it, living it. And a lot of people that I have talked to, surprisingly, really don't do prom queen and king or prom prince and princess for juniors or underclassmen anymore seems like they either take away the court or replace it with some kind of variation of that tradition, which I wonder if it has anything to do with issues that have arisen over the years with competition, or if it's much more tame and just modernizing these traditions for our changing culture. I don't know, but I do feel like competition must have been part of this. I just feel like kids really, at least in the movies we see, get so cutthroat over these titles. And I don't know, maybe sometimes schools have to step in and be like, you know what, we're just not going to do this anymore. Or maybe Carrie really had the Jaws effect or the Exorcist (gasps) effect. You know what I mean? No, wait, what's the exorcist effect? Well, I'm not, it's not like a name, but like it's how after the exorcist, droves of people returned to churches (laughs) after not going to church because it scared them so much and how Jaws was one of the first major summer horror releases. A lot of people argue whether Jaws is a horror movie. It's a horror movie. It's a creature feature. Oh, I can't watch it. It's it's scary. But like no one was afraid of sharks before Jaws. Mm. And then all of a sudden, no one wanted to go into the ocean. So maybe Carrie was this cautionary tale about like, you have popularity contests and you're going to get fucking killed by a telekinetic (laughs) 
outcast. That's it, what's going to happen to you. It's the ultimate bully PSA. It is. It's like, hey, don't be a bully. And you know what? That's good. <laughs> they got what they were going to get. They got got. Well, we're not done with prom context yet. Oh, yes. Keep going. Because look, when I found this out, I sent you that voice memo freaking out because I felt like it was one of those moments where you know all of these separate things, you've heard separate things over the years, and all of a sudden you connect all of these dots and understand a little bit more about how passage of time works and how culture evolves. And nothing is ever really separate from one another. It's all connected somehow, some way. As I am continuing to read about the origins of prom, I stumbled upon a whole book called High School Prom by Anne Anderson. It's from 2012, so pretty recent. In reading her preface, because I did not read the whole thing, a quote that stood out to me is when she states, quote, proms are primarily for and about teenage girls. And that stood out to me immediately. I felt like that was something that I always knew but never heard or read. It just kind of seems like an unspoken rule. But all of a sudden, because of when I read this, my own memories of being a teenage girl and also Netflix's Bridgerton season two (laughs) (laughs) collided. So let's look at more definitions. So promenades are defined as, quote, the formal introductory parading of guests at a party. Women have a long history of promenades as seen at modern proms, pageants, runways, and debutante balls. So now let's talk about debutante balls. According to Wikipedia, again, a woman labeled as a, quote, debutante meant she was old enough to be married. And part of the purpose of her coming out was to display to her eligible bachelors and their families with view to marriage within a select circle in a promenade. So like being a debutante is being like, I'm of age to be considered for marriage. A promenade is often associated with a debutante ball or being a debutante. We see this tradition in Bridgerton, for those of you who have seen Bridgerton season two, along with other period dramas as well. When young eligible women are paraded in front of Queen Charlotte, where she would then choose a quote, diamond of the season. So this tradition hasn't died. It just morphed into modern proms in crowning a prom queen. It always comes back to Shrek. mirror mirror on the wall with Lord Farquaad where he's introducing all of these eligible princesses yes for him to marry uh-huh. and for him to you know be betrothed to like that's exactly what's coming to mind for some reason <laughs> he literally <laughs> but yes you're right this idea of presenting oneself as an eligible bachelorette to be considered for marriage Of course, that's not what modern proms are about, but they are rooted there. Literally in the vocabulary, prom, coming from promenade, coming from debutante, from parading around, from presenting oneself. And it makes sense too why proms really are such a time of coming of age, wearing the dress, going out to the venue, if that's your tradition, driving somewhere without your parents, staying out a little bit later than usual, right? It's a time of firsts which also might be why it's been so easy over the years for prom to become very much associated with loss of virginity. If it's also a time of firsts for other things too, why not firsts for having sex? Now, I don't really think we see that as much in modern times. It's usually just about 
you've probably in Hollywood already lost your V card and now it's just like, what are you gonna do to extra spice it up on prom night? <laughs> Cause you're so fancy now. Well, I think the next step is always like the prom house. Mm. Like the next step isn't necessarily perhaps being more sexually active than you already may have been, but it's staying away, like going on vacation without parental supervision. Like the prom houses were almost like what you went to prom for by the time Mm. we were going to prom, at least. It's where were we going to go afterwards where we could go drink for a weekend or we could go do X, Y, and Z. But you're right in terms of everything being so rooted in this language. And even to take it like further back in terms of like debutantes and being ready for marriage, Carrie is very much aligned with Carrie menstruating for the first time. Yep. Which is in cultural historical context, an ascension from girlhood to womanhood, thus making her eligible to Mm -hmm. be childbearing. You know, those themes aren't as present with our main characters. And even really the loss of virginity bit isn't as present with our final girls or our main titular women that we're rooting for in the movie. But there always seems to be consequence for the women who do engage in that hypersexuality or increased sexuality or those tropes and traditions of losing your virginity on prom Mm -hmm. night. Like, they always don't tend to make it to the end of the movie. So again, like, what is that saying about the times in which they were produced and all of those types of things? We'll get into it. Oh, yeah. Well, that's the perfect segue into talking about Carrie, because that scene is where we really start in the original, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay, so let's talk about Carrie, 1976, and we will first introduce our ladies. We got Carrietta White, also known as Carrie. Played by Sissy Spacek. Indeed she is. And she was nominated for an Academy Award for her role in this movie. Did you know? Did she win it? No, Um, but she was nominated. I believe she won an Academy Award a few years later for a different role. And I think Piper Laurie was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, too, who plays Margaret White, her mother. I also can't wait to talk about Piper Laurie in her role and also Julianne Moore in the same role in 2013. I fucking love Julianne Moore. I don't know what it was about her, but I was like, how come I relate to you so hard? When she's like, you're gonna get your heart broken. This is the devil talking. I was like, actually, Carrie, your mom's kind of (laughs) right. I was like, girlfriend, because we all know what's coming. And your mom, even though it's not rooted in the right stuff and she's definitely abusive, like, how come she's so right? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) But Piper Laurie's Margaret isn't right about anything. She's nuts. No, she is a lot less likable. It kind of reminds me of Mother Gothel from Tangled. It's the story of Rapunzel and her mother. Or if you've ever seen Into the Woods, you know, the witch and Rapunzel. Like that relationship between mother and daughter that is so toxic. Confining the daughter, preventing her from having her own experiences. But then there's also those moments, like that song from Into the Woods. Also, I guess, from Tangled as well. Those moments where you see that pure love between mother and daughter. And it makes that relationship so much more messy and so much more complicated and so much more heartbreaking. But I don't think we see that same dynamic with the original Margaret White. It does seem all bad. We don't get those tender moments that make it complicated and messy. I read in an interview with Piper Laurie that she legitimately thought this movie was going to be a black comedy because she could not take the character she was playing seriously (laughs) enough. She's like, surely no one finds this genuine (laughs) because who actually is like this? Which, I mean, if anything, I I don't know if it allowed her to play more off the wall of her thinking that it was going to be portrayed more comically, but she does very well. 
Well, we've also seen Piper Laurie before. She was our girl, Mrs. Olsen, from the faculty. And that was, of course, many years later in 1996, I believe. But here we are, 20 years prior, 1976. All right, so we got Sissy Spacek as Carrie, and then we got Piper Laurie as Margaret White. Who else do we got? We have Amy Irving as Sue Snell. This is her debut role. But then she was also in a couple other things, including, oh my god. Have you ever heard of the movie Yentl? No. Oh my God. Okay. So in my life, I have gone through phases where I've been obsessed with certain movies. At one time in my life, when I was in high school, I was perusing through free movies on demand. And I came across this movie, Yentl, starring Barbara Streisand. Well, I had also just watched Funny Girl for the first time starring Barbara Streisand. And I was like, I'm going to watch this. This movie also has Mandy Patinkin, which, whoo, young Mandy Patinkin is so dreamy. The whole movie is amazing. Anyway, Amy Irving is in it. If you haven't seen Yentl and you love a rom-com, or it's kind of like a rom-com, but it's also kind of like a musical that's not a musical. It's just Barbara Streisand sings sometimes. And it's about like a Jewish woman who disguises herself as a man after her dad dies so she can get an education pre-World War II. Oh my God, it's iconic. So I had no idea that this was Amy Irving. Like she plays this woman this is where my my horror inexperience comes in. Because what have I been doing the whole time I wasn't watching horror movies? I was watching movies like Yentl. So this is really <laughs> where that other side of my expertise comes in. So I love seeing the cross connection here. Amazing. <laughs> and then Nancy Allen as Chris Harginson, who is the worst. She's the worst. Chris Harginson is, you know, I'm excited to see her in March Madness. Oh, yeah. 2023. And then we have Betty Buckley as Miss Collins. This was also her debut role. And since then, she appears in many other film and TV roles. For example, in Pretty Little Liars and Law and Order SVU. Also, I'm just throwing out there that we also have PJ Souls, who plays Norma. And she's the bitch in the red baseball cap that is like wearing the red baseball cap to prom. And she doesn't play like a big role. But the reason I'm mentioning her is that she plays Linda in Halloween. Like she's (gasps) our topless lady in Halloween, which is like very interesting like just looking at like where she goes and like all that kind of stuff. Like she's just, she's an iconic character. That's amazing. So I just had to bring PJ Souls up. Lots of ladies. Lots Lots of ladies. ladies. All right. So let's talk about it. Pretty much. I think Harry's known for its opening scene. It has a very strong opening and a very strong closing scene. Mm -hmm. Very quickly, Carrie is being characterized as unpopular, pretty isolated, not really in with the in crowd. We see this because she fucks up a gym volleyball game. You know, this is where we get our first taste of Chris, where she turns to her and is like, you eat shit, and mm. like just walks back to the locker room. Which also like, what does that even mean, Chris, huh? Come up with a better insult. <laughs> and then we're led into the steamy locker room scene where there's just a lot of non-sexual nudity. The way that I wrote about it was that it felt like a sleepover because in one oh. hallway, like they're playing with their hair and then the next hallway, they're having like a towel fight. And then in the next hallway, they're like reading magazines and gossiping. And while all of this is happening, where there's just like tits and bush everywhere, Carrie is like alone in the shower and being excluded from like all of that. And we see her exploring her body a little more. The camera's really lingering on her body. And I wouldn't say it's necessarily in a sexual way, but in a way that kind of shows she's almost scared of her own body. Mm -hmm. And in that scene, Carrie gets her period for the first time. 
But because she is so sheltered, we get the context later on that she was homeschooled up until like a year or two recently. So she hasn't really been a part of like the public school system for a while. And she does not know what her period is. Uh -uh. So when she sees blood coming out from between her thighs, she thinks that she's hurt and she thinks that something's really wrong. Oh my God. So she of course cries out for help because she's terrified. But instead of helping... All of the other girls in the locker room, including Chris and Sue, ridicule and harass her. They throw tampons at her and pads and towels until Miss Collins, the gym teacher, comes and stops all of the commotion. A very slap-happy Miss Collins. Yes. I mean, Carrie is, for lack of a better word, hysterical. I mean, she is convinced that she is dying. So she is having a full-on panic attack. So Miss Collins slaps her across the face. And she apologizes for it later, which I appreciate. <laughs> I mean, I don't think she could get away with slapping her today, but it seems to work in the moment and it comes from a good place. <laughs> she gets away with it in 2013 too, which is why oh, yeah. I have a lot of fucking opinions about because I'm like, girlfriend, um, no. depends on the district. Um, and the principal in the 2013 movie doesn't give a fuck. No. So that's probably why she gets away with it. But it is also sandwiched with Miss Collins being very sweet and saying like, I'm going to talk to you about it. Like, it's okay. You can tell she's getting this maternal comforting and she off camera gets this talk about menstruation and why there's blood between her legs and what's going on. So we get the scene with the principal and this is the context where we get that Carrie's mother is a religious fanatic who mm -hmm. has sheltered Carrie pretty much beyond socialization at this point. Carrie's regularly bullied. She's not popular. Chris and her friends are routinely the mean girls of the situations. And after Carrie's brought into the office and said that she can skip gym class and is misnamed four times as Cassie and not Ugh. Carrie, Carrie's emotions get the better of her and she flings an ashtray against the wall with her mind and it shatters. Earlier, we had also seen that Carrie in her hysteria made a light bulb above the shower shatter. So we're getting the sense that when Carrie doesn't have her emotions in check, that things tend to happen, but she doesn't really understand why or what's going on. Either way, the principal sends Carrie home. So on her way home, she also uses that recent discovery of telekinetic power to stop a boy from teasing her. Finally makes it home. Carrie is locked in a closet and forced to pray by her mother, who believes, I guess, that her period came because she was sinful. And we get a lot of weird mystical vibes from Margaret. She's in a fucking cloak. Yeah. She's giving very much Sanderson <laughs> sister. Like she's But not just, in a fun way. But not in a fun way, no. <laughs> no, she's giving like Winnie, but not enough Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm, um like mm, mm. We see that she's kind of a, like a door-to-door -door Christian spreading literature. She even tries to do this to Mrs. Snell, who is Sue's mother, mm. and she's pretty much like shooed away. Yeah, when we have this interaction where she's locked in the prayer closet, Carrie just tries to talk to her mother. It's like, why didn't you tell me, mama? Like, everyone laughed at me. <sighs> like, you should have told me, mama. And again, she just kind of comes back with this really toxic Bible verbiage of, tries to get her to repeat scripture saying that like Eve was weak and that dogs follow blood and that blood only comes because you're sinful. All that Margaret can really do is beg God for him to forgive Carrie for her sins. And yeah, locks Carrie away in this thing under the stairs, very Harry Potter-esque. Yeah. Where there is a saint who is crucified on the wall, but it is not Jesus. 
Interesting. Yeah, so I was reading about this because if you look at it, it looks like Jesus on the cross. But it is instead... Saint Sebastian. Okay. And so I looked up a little bit about Saint Sebastian. Oh my God, I'm so excited. <laughs> who is he? So Saint Sebastian was a martyr who refused to renounce his faith and was tied to a tree and shot with arrows. Hence the depiction of his emaciated body hovering over Carrie's prayers. In Catholicism, he is the patron saint of a holy death, and his eerie position is mirrored by the death of Carrie's mother later in the film. So Iconic. I'll I'll talk a little bit more about that when okay. it actually happens because the visuals really line up in terms of like the instruments that are used to kill Margaret versus like the depiction of Saint oh. Sebastian. So like he's very easily like mistaken for Jesus, and I think in the remake it actually is Jesus. I, there is a crucifix with Jesus, but there's also a lot of other art of different saints mm-hmm. and very brutal death paintings. So I'm sure that St. Sebastian probably made it back there in addition to Jesus. So next day we're at school. Miss Collins is still super pissed, which I love. She is pissed. She is so disturbed by what she saw in the locker room the previous day. She cannot believe that so many young women tormented Carrie the way that they did. She punishes the other girls during gym class the next day and forces them into a detention and also doing like running and various exercises during gym class to punish them farther. Chris, our girl, who is sort of the leader of the pack, refuses to participate. She's like, you can't make me do this. I'm not doing this. If all my friends stand with me, then you can't touch us. However... No one stands with her. No. (laughs) And we can see this with Sue. Like, Sue does feel very guilty. And the other girls, you know, they're not willing to risk prom, which Miss Collins says, if you don't go through with these punishments, you will not be allowed to go to prom. So it turns out that Chris is banned from prom. Boo-hoo. Meanwhile, Sue is feeling really guilty and decides to ask her boyfriend, Tommy, to ask Carrie to prom. Yeah, and this idea comes to her actually after a classroom scene. They're in English class, and they're talking about poetry. And Tommy had turned in a poem that's pretty obvious that he did not write, (laughs) but that someone else wrote. But the teacher reads it aloud and compliments Tommy on his poem, and Carrie says aloud, I think it's beautiful. Mm. So... Sue, from that interaction, sees that, to some degree, Carrie admires Tommy, Mm. so that she may actually say yes to a promposal. And I just have to tell this story. Oh, I'm so excited. Because (laughs) I took a creative writing class my sophomore year of high school, because that was like the first elective I could take, and I was like a budding English major, and I was like so into it. So there was like a mix of people in that class that were like really into creative writing and then also seniors who needed to graduate and needed like a very like easy quote unquote course. So this scene with Tommy turning in the fake poem reminded me of this one time that this graduating senior, you could tell she did not give a flying fuck, (laughs) turned in the lyrics to Drop the World by Little Wayne (laughs) and the teacher didn't know. So you have... My creative writing teacher from high school is like, oh my God, like, I just have to read this poem. And she starts just like saying with like this amazing cadence, I got ice in my veins, blood in my eyes, hate in my heart, 
Love in my mind. I see nights full of pain. Days of the same. You keep the sunshine. <laughs> Save me the rain. And we're all losing our shit. <laughs> because we know the song. Mm-hmm. And we're laughing. And this girl's like trying so hard not to fucking lose it. And she's like... <sighs> Yeah, it just came to me oh. on, a, on, like, a walk. And then finally, like, the jig was up and she got in a lot of trouble. But it was so fucking funny. That feels like it should be in a movie scene. It was, uh, I've never forgotten it. I've never <laughs> forgotten it. Wow. So, yeah, Tommy was up to maybe some of that similar bullshit. A little bit, yeah. Maybe just a little bit more understated. But when Sue asks him to take Carrie, he agrees. So Tommy asks her to prom and... Carrie originally says no, and she is very self-conscious that he is trying to play a trick on her. Yes. Um, So she doesn't say no because she doesn't want to necessarily, but she probably honestly hasn't even thought about going very much because of her mother and knowing that her mother would probably say no. And also we know that she's isolated. So Tommy asking her, Tommy, who was very clearly meant to be the cutie patootie hottie patati of the class, why would he ask her? What would he gain from going with her to prom? Especially because he is going with Sue. But Tommy doesn't like to take no as an answer, as many men do. <laughs> um, and after some further prodding and poking, Tommy finally gets carried to agree. Um minorly threats because he shows up at her house on her doorstep (laughs) with her mother in the house Mm -hmm. and is like i'm not leaving until you agree to go with me i mean he does it in a charming way but this still even comes after miss collins tries to intervene and talk to tommy about like what are you doing to this poor girl like she's been through enough and sue's like no this is really me just trying to make amends we have good intentions right this is what we want to do It is kind of interesting that Miss Collins is very much of the same mind that Carrie is. Mm -hmm. I feel like this plan to have Tommy invite Carrie to prom is very childish. It's like Sue being nice in her own way and thoughtful, but knowing that prom is supposed to be this such important big event, the best thing she can think to do is to try to give that experience to Carrie to make it up to her. But really, we know that prom, it's not that deep. This plan is so strange and weird, and I this has always bothered me, but it kind of makes sense that a kid, like a young kid, would think that this was the best thing to do. I'm going to bring up a thing that was added in the remake because it makes sense in this context. In the remake of this very conversation in Carrie 2013, you get a more realistic depiction of how Sue and Tommy actually see it mm. with Tommy saying, well, look at Tim Tebow. He takes kids to prom all the time and yeah. everyone loves him for it. So you can tell that it's very, we are doing this because we pity her and not because we think she deserves the experience. And it also presumes from Sue that Carrie's going to get that same amount of joy when for her, it goes against pretty much all of her values, everything she's comfortable with. She doesn't trust her peers. It's very presumptuous to think that, Mm -hmm. like, she would want to be prom queen just because Sue does. It really shows that she doesn't really care about Carrie as Mm -hmm. an individual, but more so about her appearance of not being a bitch anymore. And they really take that in the remake and run with it in a way that I do appreciate. I agree. I agree. This movie makes especially Tommy appear to be this, like, beautiful, angelic young kid. Tommy can do no wrong. He is just such a nice guy. But you're right. There is so much more context in the remake that I do think makes this feel like it does make more sense for them. 
So while all of this is happening, you have Chris and her boyfriend, Billy, having a weird grease montage. <laughs> I say that because Billy is played by John Travolta in his first major film role. And, you know, Billy is drinking and driving. They pull up to a drive-in. There's some casual domestic violence. But, like, Chris is being very manipulative of Billy, keeps kind of, like, teasing him sexually and pulling him in and out of engagement and sexual activities. But you could tell that she's doing it in a way to get power over him and in a way to manipulate him. And she does this to pretty much seduce him into agreeing to make a plan to get back at Carrie White for stopping Mm. her from going to prom. So this is a brewing at the same time as Tommy getting Carrie to agree to go to prom with him. So they decide that they're going to go kill some pigs, drain blood from the pigs, put it in a bucket, and then rig it over the stage at prom so that when Carrie wins prom queen, which we can assume is also part of their plot, making sure that happens, we can assume that that blood is going to end up on Carrie. Yes. And if you are alive in the United States, (laughs) you probably are familiar with that image some way, somehow. (laughs) Meanwhile, Carrie asks her mother if she can go to prom, and her mother responds by throwing water on her and refusing. This is where Carrie, for the first time, shows her telekinetic powers to her mom by, like, shutting all of the windows. Mm. And this is where she's like, I'm going, mama. And she really stands up for herself. And this is where, again, Mark is trying to push back, being like, oh, Satan is clever. You're a witch. He's working through you. I can see it. The devil entered your father and carried him away from me. But then Carrie's like, no, he just ran away with another woman. And everybody knows that. That scene kind of reminds me of the witch. Like the confrontation Mm. scene between Thomason and her mother. Yeah, about her father. Yeah, it does feel like there's an element here of like the mother experiencing her faded youth and maybe perhaps attributing her daughter's budding beauty to Satanism when... Is there jealousy there? Is there regret and remorse there? I don't know. But anyway, Carrie and Tommy go to prom. Hey, Carrie makes her dress. Super cute. It's pink. And she begins to have a good time. Tommy makes her feel comfortable. Her peers are being kind. Miss Collins is there as a chaperone. It's really seeming to work out. Carrie and Tommy even dance together. And Tommy kisses her. Yeah, it's weird. It is weird. I mean, he literally has a girlfriend. And I mean, I don't know. She didn't give him a pass, right? Yeah, I don't know if we're supposed to read that maybe Tommy is taking a liking to her. Because in this movie, the first time I saw this, I was like, oh, shit, he really likes her. Because he's calling her beautiful and like unprompted. And yeah, he's being a gentleman, but to the same degree, like... Again, something the remake does really well is that mm-hmm. Ansel Elgort, in his major first film role... Was that his first film role? Yeah. He does a good job. He's casted pretty well, I think, in that yeah. role. Like, he does a good job at keeping an arm's length while still appearing very genuine and wanting her to have a good time. Like, he's right. not just letting her sit in the corner by herself. He's engaging right. with her, but he's not kissing her, and he's not doing anything to disrespect his girlfriend. Right. But again, like you said, with the backstory we get in the remake, you know what he's doing and why he's doing it. This one, 
I didn't even think of how Tommy might want to be perceived by his peers. You know, we don't get the dialogue about Tim Tebow helping out kids or whatever. Like, right. it does seem like he really is digging her, despite the relationship he's in with Sue. And we get some really good cinematography here where we have that spinning shot that's very disorienting, mm. where they're slow dancing and there's like a dolly with a camera on it that just keeps spinning around them faster and faster and faster. And you are beginning to almost see that things are going to start spiraling out of control Ooh. very soon because it's setting up the punch so fucking well. Because if the movie ended here, you feel so good about what's happening, mm-hmm. but you know what's coming and it's really bringing you up to that high Ugh. to really fucking punch in the gut on the way down. So they vote for themselves for prom king and queen because to the devil with modesty. Uh And Chris and her pals have rigged the votes so that Tommy and Carrie will win, thus to set her up for the blood dump. Uh There's also, while this is happening, just a very well-placed scene of Margaret White angrily chopping carrots in the (laughs) kitchen. And it's like, you can... Sexual frustration, hating men. I don't know what it is, but it's just like, it's so intentional. It's so funny. Everything's a dick. Everything's a dick. I love that. Meanwhile, Sue sneaks into prom. Why does she do that? Is she just curious or does she get clued into something going wrong? I forget why she shows up, but she does. I don't know if she has some level of intuition or she just wants to see how it's going. Mm -hmm. They do a better job at the remake as to like why she has to be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she enters in as Tommy and Carrie win. And Collins is beaming like a mother should. Mm -hmm. Sue's happy. But then she is starting to realize the plan because she's seeing the ropes. She's trying to follow them. Chris and Billy are there. Yes. And they're, as we know, not supposed to be at prom. While Sue is trying to stop it, Colin sees her and thinks that Sue is indeed pulling a prank on Carrie instead of Chris, who she does not know who is there, pulling the prank. So Collins throws Sue out of the prom just as the bloodbath happens. Mm-hmm. And we are stripped of any sound except for the bucket swinging. People are laughing. We're getting a very shrill soundtrack of, they're all going to laugh at you, Carrie. Like this cacophonous, high-pitched, just anxiety attack you can tell that she's having. And while Tommy is protesting and trying to find out what happened, the bucket falls and kills him? Yeah. In the remake, he is definitely dead. Yes. Like his eyes are open. He's dead. But in the original, it kind of seems like he's knocked unconscious. And then because, spoiler, the whole place catches fire. I can't help but wonder if he was unconscious and then perished in the smoke and flames. Everyone counts it like the bucket killed him. And maybe they it, make buckets yeah. different back then than they do now. <laughs> I bet they did. The bucket that fell looked like a real it bucket. It looks like seal. It's like, not like a plastic sandcastle bucket. No. It is like... Your great-grandmother used that to milk the goats (laughs) (laughs) and then also used it for, like, every other utility purpose ever, and it's been in the family already for 100 years. So while this is happening, in my notes I wrote JT, John Travolta. His name is Billy. I'm like, who the (laughs) hell is JT? Um, Chris and Billy escape. Right after they do, all the doors slam, the lights go Mm. red, and fire hoses begin attacking. Hashtag telekinesis. Hashtag everything is a dick. A lot of spurting. Fire, hoses, and spurting. Fire breaks out. She kills Miss Collins. That made me so sad. 
That fucking sucks. She gets killed with a basketball net that swings down and then fucking like slices her in half, like pendulum style. Yeah, it's so sad. I also wrote down here that although Carrie is wearing a pink dress, her mother Margaret had commented about how she knew Carrie would go for red and now she is wearing red. Yes. Because she's covered in blood. She is. Ooh. So most of, if not all, of her fellow students are stuck in this gym, including the chaperones. She somehow makes it out of the burning building and she starts walking home as, of course, fire trucks and emergency personnel are rushing to the building. Then we see Chris and Billy, who made it out of the building after they released the bucket of blood, driving away. Carrie sees them as well. They try to run her over... But Carrie uses her telekinesis, of course, destroys the car, and both of them are killed. Carrie gets home. There's many candles alit, perhaps irresponsibly so. (laughs) I would say very irresponsibly so. Yes. She bathes the blood off and cries, then gets dressed and begs Margaret to hold her. And as Margaret is like, quasi comforting her she goes into this rant of i should have killed myself after he put it in me oh god and this is where we get some context that carrie was conceived through marital rape margaret and carrie's father were married but were still for some reason abstaining from sex because it's that sinful so you can tell i guess how crazy in in hardcore beliefs Even if you are married, you're still not supposed to have recreational sex. Mm -hmm. It should only be for the purpose of procreation. But then she goes into all of this about how she liked it and how because she liked it, it made it a sin. And thus Carrie is a sin because she is a product of that. Mm. She goes on to say, I should have given you to God when you were born. Now the devil has come home. So we're getting some, some crazy shit. And then Margaret stabs Carrie. Carrie falls down the stairs. Margaret signs the sign of the cross above her with a butcher knife and goes after her, is trying to kill her. But Carrie, with her telekinesis, pins Margaret to the wall with multiple knives. There are stabs in her hands, in her shoulders, in her torso. And then Margaret orgasms. Does she? Her vocalization is moans of ecstasy. Mm. She... Well, we can tell that she, well, at least in the remake as well, you know, somebody who clearly takes pride in masochistic tendencies, abstaining from anything joyful, vain enjoyments. In the remake, we do see that she at one point is stabbing her thigh with a seam ripper, right? Like, I think in the remake, there's more of that developed sense of actual masochism. I feel like that self-harm, that masochistic piece is also rooted in that very hyper-religious characterization of her somehow. And this is where I'll read the second half of that quote from earlier. So we were talking about St. Sebastian and obviously like his crucifixion with arrows and other pointed figures. So in Catholicism, St. Sebastian is the patron saint of a holy death and his eerie position is mirrored in the death of Carrie's mother by quasi-crucifixion, wherein she also is pierced by flying knives. Her death at the end of the film is particularly haunting and even somewhat sexual as she's pierced and lets out near-orgasmic moans. She is left in the same position as St. Sebastian from the closet, and it's almost guaranteed that she believes she died a holy death. Oh. 
Because again, remember St. Sebastian was a martyr who refused to renounce his faith and then thus was tied to a tree and shot with arrows. Do you think Carrie did that on purpose? Do you think Carrie tried to give her mom a death that she would take pride in? Or is it, especially because we don't really see this aspect too much in the original, is it that Margaret knew what Carrie was capable of and if she had to die by this way, that like that's how she was destined to die is by being uncompromising, by not accepting mm. Carrie for who she was. Because we do see Carrie immediately after this happens, she regrets it. She's very right. remorseful. She takes the knives out of her mother and in her emotional turmoil, the house begins to implode on itself. Yes. And she drags her mother to the prayer closet where she comforts her as she's dying and both of them are swallowed up into the earth. Then, sometime later, Sue is still alive because she did not go to prom. Well, she was kicked out by Miss Collins in in the nick of time. Right. She's walking by the site of the house or the former house where Carrie and her mother used to live. She reaches down and puts down some flowers and all of a sudden, in the jump scare of a lifetime, Carrie's bloody hand reaches up through the dirt, grabs Sue... And the movie ends. And this was said to be the inspiration for that jump scare in Friday the 13th. I think I told you this before. The first thing I knew about Carrie was one time my mom watched this movie with her friend at a sleepover, saw this scene, and was traumatized for the rest of her life. (laughs) I feel like I had seen this scene before. Like, maybe I heard this story because one day... Because we know I love to walk through the family room of the old house. My my dad and brother are watching awful scary movies and I happen to just gravitate towards the room at the worst moments. I felt like I had seen this before. So I knew this was coming because it's kind of like lore in my house. My mother was so terrified. She was very displeased. And Friday the 13th, I did not know that was coming. And I was a little bit traumatized. You screamed. And I did. Sc- I did. That was when we used to have viewing parties. Just the two of us. We were with our friends that time. We were at their house. Were we? Yeah. We watched Friday the 13th, all four of us, after brunch. Oh, Penis good. in the boudoir. Uh, yeah, that's right. Penis in the boudoir. God, it's so much more fun watching horror movies with like with a bunch friends. of people. We watched I Know What You Did Last Summer together, both the first one and the second one. Yeah, we did. Very recently. We did. And that was so fun. I love that we don't have to watch these movies separately anymore. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> Me too. So to wrap Carrie up, I have a couple quotes pretty much on how misogyny is represented in Carrie, which I thought was pretty interesting. And a lot of that obviously focuses on Margaret White, her mother. So in an article, Carrie White Burns in Hell, Carrie's 40th anniversary by Becky Belzile, she writes, King hates piety without purpose and Carrie's mother comes across as a sadly misinformed religious extremist. De Palma, who's the director, interpreted this idea by making her a sort of perverted and disfigured version of a Roman Catholic. Her fear of sex and sexuality is combated by religious fanaticism, but also delusion, as any scripture she quotes is a bastardization of the actual text. Most of her most shocking quips, the first sin was intercourse, Eve was weak, and mentions of the curse of God put upon women is quoted from a book called The Sins of Women. It's clear that Margaret believes that blood flows the sin of intercourse and lustful thoughts and that women are inherently evil. We later find out that Carrie herself was conceived by marital rape, adding complex layers of guilt and shame to be explored. So 
It's obvious that Margaret thinks that any sense of sex, sexuality, uh, we see her earlier call Carrie's breasts dirty pillows, yes. which is a, which is an insult that carries into the remake, which why, I don't know. It's iconic. But it's also the lack of action that men drive in the movie that's very interesting. Mm. So she also writes, there's a lot of manhandling by teachers and boyfriends in this film and a lot of name calling all around. The boys are portrayed as stupid pawns in the girls' evil games, going along with anything to get a glimpse of a breast and the chance to impress. So you really do see Billy doing Chris's bidding by killing the pig and by, you know, setting up the rig and like really like getting into trouble for her. And then you see Tommy just accepting that he's going to take this loner to prom and not have his hot girlfriend on the arm. And you have Carrie, who is not coded as a feminine character, despite us seeing her menstruate. Like, we're not meant to really sympathize with her as a feminine character, only when she has that ugly duckling to swan transformation of, oh, wow, you washed your hair and you put on drugstore makeup, and now you're beautiful. Wow. So it has a lot to say about like women driving the action, obviously, but it also just has a lot to say of like how the women within the films don't support each other, even when it comes across as trying to be genuine. Right. It kind of reminds me of like the idea of like Catholic guilt, like somehow internalizing their own disruptiveness and taking it out on each other. So obviously the vibe after watching Carrie and seeing her and her mother perish and knowing that she never really got her happy ending is very somber. And now we're going to pivot to a very spunky. (laughs) Spunky. I don't know what else to call it. It's perfect. A spunky movie, Prom Night 1980. This was Jamie Lee Curtis in her Scream Queen circuit. We have her kicking it off, obviously, with Halloween in 1978. And then in the same year, she filmed Terror Train, Mm. which also was released in 1980, which is a New Year's Eve horror film that takes place on a train. Have you told me about this before? We were almost going to cover it. I really would like to keep this in mind for the near future. Exactly. Essentially, it's a serial killer that is like released on a New Year's Eve celebration train. What the fuck is up with Jamie Lee Curdy? (laughs) (laughs) Jamie C. Lurdy. (laughs) What is up with our girl, Jamie Lee Curtis? In movies with escaped murderers. She just is really good at it. She is always finding herself in situations with escaped people, whether or not they are responsible. Very, very much true. <laughs> very much true, yes. And then Prom Night 1980, she is our uh, titular screen queen as well. So she was like working the market in the late 70s and early 80s. And I cannot wait to talk about the dance number. Literally. <laughs> I've watched that dance number like five times it's since so the movie. Just the dance number. Jaw dropped. Oh, it had me gagged. It was great. Well, let's stop teasing you guys and just get there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So the general premise of Prom Night 1980, if you've seen I Know What You Did Last Summer, you know the premise of it. Because you pretty much have a group of kids who commit a crime and swear each other to secrecy to never tell the truth as to what happened. And it ends up with somebody dying. And then that reckoning comes back to haunt them later. And in this case, on their prom night. We open with a bunch of kids playing in an abandoned building. They're playing a game called The Killer is Coming. So it seems like some fucked up version of hide and seek. There's four kids that are running in and out. 
There is Nick, there is Wendy, there is Jude, and there is Kelly. Mm-hmm. And those are the four that are playing hide and seek. And then up rolls a triple set of siblings. You have Robin, you have Kim, and then you have Alex. So they are all siblings. Alex is the brother and the other two are sisters. And let me just say, (laughs) the (laughs) get-ups. I was like, what in the fucking Pugsley Adams shit is this? (laughs) They are all wearing striped turtleneck sweaters. They are all matching. Shut the fuck up. You did not notice? They are no. all wearing the same exact thing. I was Black probably and white. busy paying attention to the fact that Nick is literally scaling the wall true. of the motherfucking building at this point. That's true. He is not doing what he should be doing. <laughs> no. But all of this commotion of this gameplay interests Robin, but does not interest Kim and Alex. So Kim and Alex go off elsewhere and Robin's like, okay, I'm gonna go check this out. So she goes inside and she does find Nick and she's like, well, like, what's going on? What are we playing? But then I guess because she's the one out of the joke, all of the kids surround her and just keep yelling, kill, 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 kill. Yeah, it's really weird. They mosh for a little bit. (laughs) They like push her around and she's like, I didn't want to play. But they back her into a windowsill with no secure screen And she ends up falling out a window and on the top of a car and dying. Yeah, and if she wasn't already dead, the rest of the glass part comes off and then we can assume slices her. Yeah, slices her throat. Yeah. And this is where we see Wendy, our little harlot of sorts, pull an I Know What You Did Last Summer. I literally wrote that down before I even noticed the connection. (laughs) And swears them all to secrecy and they run away. But then we see a shadow go over Robin, who is presumably dead. So we know that somebody discovered her body. Yeah. Okay, so the cops show up and the parents are on the scene and they're talking about how she was probably the victim of a sexual attack. And I'm like, where? Yeah. Why? I guess maybe sign of the times. Like we're, it's 1980. We're just coming out of the weird and wild 1960s and 70s with like a bunch of like prolific serial killers with sexual agendas. Well, what we come to find out, and I think the reason why this piece of dialogue is there is because Robin's death does get pinned on a sexual predator who was at large at the time. Yes. We also find out that the lead investigator was Nick's dad. So. Who is also the principal? No, that is Kim and Alex's father. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So my presumption is once we kind of learn this information is that Nick's father, who is like the lead detective, put this guy away or pinned it on this person, maybe because he figured Nick and them were playing there and maybe he was trying to cover it up. That is never proven and it's never explicit, but that's what I took away from it is Mm -hmm. that it was easier to pin it on this sexual predator who was at large at the time than actually investigate it. Or maybe Nick spilled the beans and he did everything he could to protect his son. Mm -hmm. So we don't know what the case is. But either way, we jump six years. We find out that Robin died when she was 10 years old. Their parents are putting their flowers down. And then we see a grown up Kim and Alex also putting flowers down and mourning the loss of their sister. At this point, Kim and Alex are both high school age. So about 16, 15. I don't know the age difference between Alex and Kim. We'll just go over our ladies super quick. Jamie Lee Curtis, of course, is Kim Hammond. Mary Beth Rubens as Kelly Lynch. She is one of our kids who was sworn to secrecy in the abandoned building at the beginning. 
And then Anne-Marie Martin plays Wendy Richards, who appears briefly in Halloween 2 and wrote Twister. Okay. And Wendy could have it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> I'm sorry. Like, she is so hot in this movie. And the person I watched this with, we were transfixed, especially her prom dress. And you and I talked about Look, her prom dress. You listen to me. One of the things we love to talk about on this podcast is how fun different wardrobes are in different decades. We love it. Wendy's prom dress, it knows no limits. It knows no decade. It is perfect. Timeless. Oh my God. I mean, I guess at the time it was supposed to be like really super... Scandalous. Yeah, but it like in our time, it's perfect. It's fun. It's sparkly. It's red. The straps are cute. Like it just looks perfect. I can't get over it. I cannot, especially because of Kim's dress. Oh, we're going to get there. Okay. We're going to get there. We're we're jumping. We're jumping, but like, oh my God. So this is where we get a little more context on the other two girls in the squad, Jude and Kelly, because both of them receive prank calls. One of which asks if Jude can still come out and play and that he'll see her at prom. And then another one calls Kelly. Tonight's my turn. She's a little more worried. I wrote down Jude as an unbothered queen because (laughs) not only does she seem unconcerned with the threatening prank call, a man named Slick pulls up in a van as she's walking to school. And after he like is very creepy to her, she accepts the ride and then later takes him to prom after she met him that day. They're actually my favorite couple. Like literally (laughs) Slick and Jude, like fine. Mm -hmm. Like I just wrote Jude as an unbothered queen, which is fine. (laughs) Whereas Kelly is more characterized as your almost like Carrie White, like uptight Christian has a boyfriend who's very horny named Drew. He's also very unsavory being like, oh, you got a prank call. He probably turned you on, didn't he? Maybe I should try to creep you out. It's like, ew, Drew. Who fucking says that, Drew? Ew, Drew. That's not cute. Put that away. (laughs) Nick also gets a call, but he misses it. He doesn't answer it because him and his dad leave to go to school. He also thinks it's Wendy pestering him. Yes, we find out that Wendy and Nick are exes, and now he has the hots for Kim, Mm -hmm. Jamie Lee Curtis. Meanwhile, we have a flashback to the past because throughout this movie, even though the police really don't do anything at all, we keep seeing what they're doing. It turns out that there is a missing woman. She was working in the facility that our accused sex offender was staying in who had supposedly killed Robin six years prior. Then her body is found and the sex offender is at large. Yeah, and we also get a flashback to the night that he was caught where his car catches on fire for some reason. And I wrote, (laughs) sex offender on fire by Kings of Leon. Just saying. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. Sex offender Offender on fire. If you could be here, you would see that Shay's like whole like arms operated as like little parentheses for like sex (laughs) offender. offender. (laughs) Excellent. See, when do you get a call? She thinks it's Nick. So she picks up all cute, but it's not Nick. So then she thinks it's some guy named Lou messing with her. She's like, oh, Lou, flink, hangs up the phone. Next day at school, Drew, Kelly's boyfriend, is all over her, but she's saying, save it. And so immediately I was like, does that mean for prom night? Are they like, Mm -hmm. have they slept together yet? Blah, blah, blah. Shortly after that, we meet Lou and he's awful and he makes bad lesbian jokes. (laughs) 
<laughs> he does make bad lesbian jokes. They're he's not even got, good. <laughs> he's got a unibrow to rival unibrows. He's not an attractive boy. No. Also, I just wrote here, severe lack of prom planning, because the prom is like literally tomorrow evening, and they're trying to figure out who it's they're going tonight. with. It's tonight. It's literally tonight. Prom night, not everything is all right. Listen no one me. knows what the date is. Listen to me. Kids back in the 80s were so different, I guess, than kids today. Kids literally will not go to school on Friday to get ready for prom on Saturday. Mm -hmm. Like, they are so intense about it. We see Kim at one point at, like, track practice. Prom is in, like, 45 minutes, and she's, like, running laps. It's so bizarre to me. But yes, prom is this night. All of this takes place with the exception of our scene six years prior. All of this takes place within the same day. So back to the police, because we love the back and forth. Nurse is found. Her body's in an abandoned building. She was murdered. It's the abandoned building. Oh, fuck. It's the abandoned it's the building. the abandoned building. She's murdered with a piece of glass. Mm -hmm. Just like Robin was killed with that fallen window pane. Back at school. Kim is looking at progress for that night's dance. And she's she, boogieing alone. Yeah, she is. She's practicing her fucking moves. Because apparently at this school, before prom even happens, everybody already knows who's going to be prom king and queen. Nick and Kim are already prom king and prom queen. They just have to be crowned at the actual dance. I don't know yes. what their criteria is. I don't know when the voting happened. But mm -hmm. that's just what we know as yep. viewers. Then Wendy comes on the scene and she gives Kim shit for going to prom with her man, Nick. Kim's like, who are you going with? And Wendy's like, it's not who you go with, honey. It's who you take home. So cut to some random pair of hands slowly ripping up yearbook pics of the teens we've met so far. End scene. On to school. <laughs> this movie loves to cut between things yeah like not show you exactly what's going on or who mm -hmm. it is mm -hmm. but we're seeing the killer's perspective a lot so back at school lou all of a sudden is in the lunchroom and he kisses kim through this weird dumb ski mask alex kim's brother sees and hits him and two of lou's cronies come back at alex but he fends them off until lou gives him a killer kidney punch and then a teacher comes and breaks it up and takes the boys to the principal's office but somehow only lou and nick make it to the principal's office like oh, lou and alex oh yeah i'm so sorry it's lou what? and alex so then wendy and nick talk in the hallway and wendy says she doesn't want to leave their relationship as is but nick does so we get the sense that things are finally over 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 between them but then Lou also rejects Wendy, too, being like, oh, like, what are you doing tonight? And we find out from the principal scene that the principal is indeed Alex's father, and Lou is suspended and mm -hmm. can't go to prom. So he cannot take Wendy to prom. So that's exactly. Wendy has no prom date. So Nick and Kim are at an overlook. They are hanging out, and Kim is reminiscing about how prom day is Robin's day. So this is like the anniversary of Robin's death. Again, we got that graveyard scene. I guess that must have been right before school. Mm -hmm. Again, very long day. Long day for everybody. She's talking about how much she misses her and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, Nick is a fucking ass to comfort his girlfriend, Kim, when he knows what he did. And yeah. he almost confesses, but then he doesn't. We see like a little bit of remorse from Nick about his part in Kim's sister's death, which obviously Kim is unaware of, but not enough for him to actually own up to anything or have any consequences by the end of the movie because mm -mm. he doesn't fucking have any. No, he doesn't. Next scene, Lou and Wendy are in the same car. They're ordering food together and they seem to be plotting something. 
It's very vague. Wendy says some dialogue like she doesn't want to hurt anyone. Lou's kind of like, I know, but I don't fucking trust Lou. No, Lou's a weird guy. Next scene. Oh, Kim is playing tennis. She's not at track practice. She's at tennis. Okay, so it's like 45 minutes before prom. She's at tennis. All of a sudden, there's a man on campus. I guess we can assume he's a custodian named Mr. Sykes. We've seen him in the beginning of the movie. He's supposed to be coded as very creepy and unsettling. Some girl named Vicky decides she's gonna moon Mr. Sykes. I just wrote, what the fuck? That never amounts to anything. He is just being built as a red herring because he's holding like garden shears at one point. We also get some conversation with Kelly. She contemplates just letting Drew do it, which is exactly how you want to talk about losing your virginity. Yeah, if I don't do it with him, he'll find someone else or he'll find someone who will. So she's feeling pressured. I also love this part because this is like, I wrote naked girl shower scene. Kelly takes off her shower cap to reveal she's still wearing pigtails. (laughs) (laughs) Kelly loves her pigtails. And then of course we have this scene. I feel like her pigtails kind of make her dialogue all the more tragic. You can tell throughout the movie, she's just not ready to have sex. No, You know, her affection for her boyfriend is real, but she's just not ready and that's okay. But she's feeling very pressured. Suddenly, there's a spooky crack noise heard. And I guess we can assume someone else is in the locker room. And when Kim and Kelly look around, they see that a shard from a shattered mirror has been taken. And if we know anything about shattered glass... It's that it can kill somebody. <laughs> is that, is that what we know about this, shattered? Okay. Especially in, in this, this movie. movie. Yes. <laughs> then we have prom king and queen rehearsal, which makes me laugh. Yes. And Lou and Wendy <laughs> are looking on sinisterly. So yes. you can tell that they're like plotting a plot. Also, Wendy finds a photo of herself with the glass shard in her locker, as do Jude and Kelly. So yes. we are getting some ominous things outside of the phone call. We're also getting some love notes in the locker but instead of love notes it's i might Mm -hmm. kill you notes i also wrote here what business meeting does jamie lee curtis always have to dress for because she's in a blazer (laughs) she is like business professional all the time she's Mm. looking like a lex sexy tiffany from our favorite Mm. when a stranger calls oh my god we love tiffany we love the business professional look for people who are not qualified to be in business yet (laughs) so and we see her move from this blazer to her dress reveal her dress reveal is not good you guys it's not good it gets better when she takes off her shawl well it's the shawl but then she also has the chunky pearls and the perm that's why i said to you um <laughs> Wendy's serving everything and Jamie Lee Curtis is serving Frankenfurter. <laughs> Listen to me. Jamie Lee Curtis's hair is so close to being so good. And you know how I feel about perms. I, I fuck do. with a perm. You do. I had a perm for nine years. But with the dress, with the pearls, it's not good. It's really not good, especially when we see our other dress reveal from Wendy. Nick picks Kim up and guiltily looks at a picture of Robin. Mm. So again, you can tell the guilt is getting to him. And yes, I wrote, Wendy is hot. Then we get to prom. I wrote, OMG, world's smallest prom. There are like 20 people on the dance floor. I guess they had a low budget. Well, they had a high budget because the floor is light up. What oh, yeah. What the fuck is going on with this shit? <laughs> they also had the budget, or I should say the movie did not have the budget to put real music in this 
because we get the scene that we've been previewing of <laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis boogieing the night away with her date Nick to the song Prom Night uh-huh. that was made for this movie. It's an original movie because essentially what happened is they filmed all of the prom scenes with actual disco hits, but then the studio did not have enough money to get the rights to the music. So they asked the composer, whose name is Paul Zaza, to make music that could sound like original disco songs that were close to the hits, but not so close that they could be sued. And he was given five days. So all of the music you hear in this movie is completely original and probably sounds like something that could be real, but actually is not real because that was by design. But it all worked out for the best because Prom Night, Everything is Alright is literally iconic. A three minute boogie sequence. It is. Well, it begins as a dance battle that never actually turns into a dance battle. No. It seems like Kim kind of takes Nick to the dance floor with the goal of challenging Wendy and Lou, but that never happens because she just eats it up. They just eat it up. We have dialogue talking to Kelly. It'll be no big deal. It's like getting a shot, which literally what the fuck? I was like, poor Kelly. (laughs) Then I said, oop, we're in the locker room and it's dark and sex is going to happen and someone's going to die because I've been around long enough to know the pattern. Kelly, surprisingly, I thought she was going to go through with it, but she stops it. Drew mocks her and he gets pissed off and leaves. He says to her, if you don't, I know plenty who will. And then I wrote, Drew leaves, Kelly dies. (laughs) I also found it funny that he takes off his boutonniere and tosses it. It's almost like a bouquet toss. Like, it's like what she values. Like, she wants to, like, wait for that stuff until marriage. And even Mm -hmm. she's wearing a blooming flower in her hair. Like, again, very, like, akin to sexuality and all that kind of stuff. So I just found it like that kind of symbolism was very intentional. But Mm -hmm. yes, the killer does attack in slow-mo as she's getting dressed and slits her throat. Yeah, super sucky. And then we get another sex scene with Jude and Slick. Literally couple of the millennia. Yes. Iconic. I like Slick. He's a little creepy, but he's just a chunky nerd with glasses who's got confidence, and Jude likes that shit. Once he's characterized, I'm all for it. In the beginning, of course, we see a van with a fellow inside that's a little bit too confident. And Cat Collie, we don't like that. We're very concerned. But Slick has a book of blunts, a book of blunts, mm-hmm. and <laughs> they are enjoying that book of blunts. They take a brief detour to hook up in the bluffs. I'm like, what the fuck are the bluffs? Uh, that's what I said. Like, why do you want to hook up outside? There's bugs out there. It's but I love that moment. They're like, do you want to do it in the bluffs? They're like so thrilled with sleeping together. I know. That they're like, let's do it here. Let's do it there. It's so cute. <laughs> now this sequence. Oof. It lasts for it's too long. 15 minutes. <laughs> it's too long. <laughs> because Jude dies quick and easy. Because essentially what happens is Jude is like topless and laying against the two back doors of the van. So the killer just opens the back doors of the van. She plops backwards and she's in prime position to get her throat slit. And that's what happens. Mm-hmm. I don't know why we are given a chase scene with Slick and not with Jude, being that Jude was involved in the fucking murder and Slick is just this guy that went to prom with Jude. Yeah, I agree. So essentially, the killer attacks, kills Jude, Slick drives off with the guy hanging off the side of the vehicle. Then the man is knocked off the vehicle, but then runs back up to the vehicle while he's doing donuts in the bluffs, 
climbs back inside of the vehicle, <laughs> jostles Slick from behind, but then jumps out of the van in time for Slick to drive himself and Jude's dead body over a cliff and it bursts into flames. I'm like, why did this scene need to happen? And why are you doing donuts in the bluffs? Why don't you just do anything else? Meanwhile, the ski mask our assailant is wearing is very sparkly. Did you notice that? I did not notice that. Oh my God. His ski mask is so sparkly. And this is where I wrote, this is just a reminder that Lou and Wendy slash Jew and Slick became entangled today. Again, this is 24 hours of action, y'all. I miss them. It was hard to see them go. (laughs) I miss them. I miss them. So back at the dance, Wendy is putting on makeup in the bathroom and somebody enters. She asks them for mascara, but there's no answer. So obviously this is a sinister moment here. Lights go out, all of a sudden, an axe swings, Mrs. Wendy, chase ensues. So very much like the original kill scene in the abandoned building six years prior, but now Wendy is the one being chased and someone is chasing her. Somehow she's in some kind of science classroom and she is able to avoid the killer for a little bit, but then she knocks over like one of those body anatomy models. And I wrote Mergy because of- um, Hellraiser. Hellraiser. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she screamed. Like. Yep. That's what Frank looked like, Mergy. And if you don't know who Mergy is, listen to the Hellraiser episode. But she screams and run away. She keeps giving away her location. The killer is back on her trail. Now she makes it into, I guess, a body shop or like a garage, some kind of situation. She hides in a car, which is dumb Mm -hmm. because way to make sure you can totally be seen but have nowhere to go. But then she gets out after she's discovered, gets into a storage closet but she screams because she finds a body in sort of a semi-final girl circuit, gives away her location, and is killed. I think she finds Kelly's body. She finds Kelly's body yeah. in the closet. And yeah. then that's it. Meanwhile, Squints slash Sykes is being taken away by a cop because he is drunk and bumbling about how a killer is on the loose. Because apparently hmm. he did witness Wendy's murder. Oh, fuck. He is apparently seen in a scene... I don't remember that. I don't know either. I read it somewhere that he was apparently like also hiding in the closet because he was also being pursued or something. And then he watched her get murdered and then he, but he was drunk and then he was like, oh my God, there's a killer on the loose. But because he's weird. That's very, who's that fellow in Friday the 13th? Remember that guy in Friday the 13th who like warns everybody not to go to camp? Oh, uh, fucking Ralph. He's kind of like that. The red herring who ends up trying to do good. Crazy Ralph. Yeah, exactly. And then... We see that this plan that Lou and Wendy, but now Wendy is absent, so it's just Lou enacting this plan to have Sweet Kim all to himself. Because again, Wendy wanted Nick and Lou wanted Kim. So they were never really romantically entangled. Mm. They were entangled for the sake of their individual romantic pursuits. So Lou's cronies bound and gag Nick as he's about to process out to receive his homecoming crown. But then instead... Lou takes his place, but because Lou takes his place, the killer comes up behind him and fucking decapitates him with Mm. an axe. Lou's head rolls down the runway, and obviously, people run screaming. Meanwhile, there's a disco track bumping in the background that never stops. I love that. This is the reprise of Prom Night, Everything is Alright. Everything is not alright. I wrote this. This is one of my favorite parts of any movie we ever watched for this podcast. Oh my god. The reprise of Prom Night during the chaos. I was like, this is artistic genius right here. Jamie Lee Curtis saves Nick. We love (laughs) when Queen saves her king. Amazing. Mm. Oof! 
but is chased by the killer and the killer like growls like now it's my turn and you can tell that the killer is focusing on nick which is important but jamie lee curtis is able to get the axe slams the killer in the head and disorients him they make knowing eye contact and we realize that kim realizes something but we don't know what she realizes the killer wanders out into the crowd where everyone has fled the auditorium and in that time he falls to the ground and he is unmasked and is revealed to be alex the killer is alex who is robin's twin and kim's brother he is sobbing and he says i killed her because he was the shadow that saw robin so i guess he blames himself Obviously, he was trying to seek revenge for his sister by killing all of her killers, which he killed three of four, which isn't a bad batting average, but he dies in Jamie Lee Curtis's lap, and that's the end. Yeah. As fun as this movie is, the ending is definitely a bummer, because Jamie Lee Curtis's character, because she hits the killer on the head with the butt of the axe, is ultimately responsible for his death, and that's her brother, and that fucking sucks. Because you can tell that even in this short amount of time, we see her with that realization that she is going to be plagued with regret for the rest of her life. Also, Nick still gets the girl and keeps his secret. Yeah, what the f- Like, what? Like, what the fuck? What is up with that? I'm tired of that. <laughs> Either way, I was on IMDb Trivia, because that is Ooh. what I love to peruse for <laughs> some of our discussion points of this movie. And I saw a very interesting parallel that was made to Carrie already. And obviously we drew this parallel as wanting to cover these movies together because they're obviously both about prom. But I read the piece of trivia and it said, as with Carrie, 1976, this is a revenge movie focusing on the prom. And as with Carrie, there is a prank at the beginning, which ends up having disastrous consequences. Also like Carrie, in this movie, the prom queen is supposed to be victimized by a stage prank And as with Carrie, you have a fake prom king and queen standing in for the real king and queen. But whereas in Carrie, the prom queen ends up being victimized at the prom, she is drenched in pig's blood. In this movie, the prom king gets victimized at the prom as he is decapitated. Mm. So you see this dynamic of a true king and a true queen. We obviously know that Tommy is meant to be the prom king in Carrie, but Carrie is the false queen because it was supposed to be Sue, but she took his place. Whereas Kim was meant to be the prom queen with Nick, but Nick was dispatched and then it ended up being Lou, even though he was never announced. But because he was standing in the place of Nick, Nick would have died, but because he took his place, it was the false king, he got decapitated. I'm also interested in the choice of decapitation here, partially because we just talked a lot about decapitation of women in our hereditary episode, but decapitation has been a death sentence for royalty for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. So I don't think it's an accident that our king here is decapitated as his death sentence, whereas we don't see anything like that for any of our other characters. But yeah, that's prom night. So obviously both of these movies take place in the 70s and we get very consistent themes throughout the two in terms of what prom night is meant to represent for the youth of the 70s, whether it be losing your virginity, whether it be vying for that coveted prom king and queen winning the affections of the boy or girl of your favor, of boogieing the night away. We get intentional dance scenes in Mm -hmm. both of them. 
So this is really exemplifying the almost like adherence to tradition that you were talking about in the context. Whereas we get revisions to both of these being that there are remakes to both of them. So the remake of Carrie comes out in 2013, and then the remake of Prom Night comes out in 2008. Now, there are a lot more parallels because Carrie 2013 is actually a remake, and Prom Night is a bastardization (laughs) slasher that steals the name Prom Night. (laughs) It has nothing to do with the original source material, and we both hated it. Well, let's talk about the Carrie remake first. We've already been kind of talking about that one along the way. So there's not much to talk about because it's the same fucking movie. It really is. So go through our cast list again. Like who plays who now? Oh, absolutely. Okay. So our main ladies in Carrie 2013, we have Chloe Grace Moretz as Carrie White. She is in the Amityville Horror remake, The Eye, Let Me In, Dark Shadows, Carrie, and Suspiria, Mm -hmm. which we covered the original Suspiria, but not the remake. And I still want to see the remake. Then we have Julianne Moore as Margaret White, whom I love. love. But she's a two-time Academy Award winner. I love Julianne Moore. And she's in a lot. Yeah. And then we have Judy Greer. I also love Judy Greer. Yeah. Yeah. As Miss Desjardins. Which is a renaming of Miss Collins, which I'm interested in. So actually in the book, her name is Desjardines. I don't know where Collins ah. came from. I don't know why the Great. why De Palma decided to name her Miss Collins okay. instead of Desjardines, but she her name is Desjardines in the movie. Okay. So this is more correct. And we've talked about Judy Greer before. She's our girl, Kitty Walker from The Village. She's in Halloween 2018 and Halloween Kills and also the best friend in every rom-com you've seen. And it's just also awesome because obviously in Halloween Kills and Halloween 2018, she plays the daughter of Jamie Lee Curtis of Laurie Strode. Yeah. That is so cool. Yeah. So it's like a lot of overlap here with the Scream Queens. Then we have Gabriella Wilde as Sue Snell. She's in a few things, including Wonder Woman 1984 and the Poldark series, which I put in here because I have seen part of the Poldark series. It's like a period drama. And then Portia Doubleday as Chris Harginson. Yeah, she's in her, which I have such... Oh, fuck her. She's in her. Okay. I... That technological, like, social media thing. I always associate that movie with you because I remember so distinctly you were house-sitting and I house-sat with you and we watched her in a stranger's house together. Interesting. I always associate that movie with you. Okay. Portia Doubleday does a really good job being awful in this movie. She really does. We've already talked about some of the differences along the way as we were talking about the original Carrie, just because they are so similar and it's easy to talk about them both at the same time. They are so similar to a fault. And that is something (laughs) that a lot of people say about this movie is they keep a lot of dated dialogue. They really don't try to do anything different. Essentially, I made a list of the main departures from the original, the main updates to the original. So I'm going to just run through them really quick. And they kind of go in order in terms of like as they appear in the plot. But then we'll obviously talk about them as they come up. There's no nudity, sexual or non, in this one, which is fine. Margaret White, we talked about this earlier, receives a much more dynamic arc in the remake. Instead of being this just like very one-tone, fanatical, Roman Catholic, extremist, evangelist, whatever, she's seen a lot less fanatical 
but a lot more manipulative. So Julianne Moore is is seen self-harming a lot through cutting herself or through slamming her head against the wall or by punching or slapping herself in the face. And she kind of uses this to manipulate Carrie. Like Mm -hmm. when Carrie tries to go to the prom, she just starts slapping herself in an attempt to try to get Carrie to like stay home and take care of her. The movie opens with a birth scene, which is different from the original. Julianne Moore almost killing the baby with a pair of shears, but then stops herself. And then in this film, they are much more affectionate and comforting as a mother and daughter. It is not just a one-toned cruelty. Obviously, Margaret still has her undertones of extremism in her opinions, but they are much more affectionate and bonded with each other. And it actually is believable, too, because Chloe Grace Moretz was 15 when she filmed this. Mm. Like She actually was a teenage girl. Mm -hmm. So just the dynamic was a lot more believable. Also, Carrie is more combative, which I think is more in line with the 2010s just as like a vibe. Uh, (laughs) I like that she counters a lot of Margaret's more hateful verses with verses about how God is loving. And Mm. even when she is being accused of sinning, she says, I didn't sin, you sinned. And there's Mm. a lot more scenes of Carrie restraining her mother, restraining her mother and like silencing her, like a lot more power play. I wrote, why is Judy Greer not in jail? She should be because the slap remains. You can't do that anymore. Also, Carrie seems more invested in and power to explore her abilities, her telekinetic abilities in the remake, whereas the original characterizes them as more of hysterical emotional outbursts with no control. Whereas you see Carrie practicing her telekinesis more. She's picking up books and she's lifting her bed, paranormal activity style. Like she's just doing... Yeah, she's vibing with it. She's vibing with it. She likes it. She feels empowered by it. Also had mentioned earlier that Tommy is more realistic with the Tim Tebow comment, not kissing her, not really liking how cruel Sue's friends are, the friends being Chris and Billy and all of them. And the main deviation and the main update was the filming of the plug it up sequence. So the filming of the sequence where Sue and Chris and company are throwing tampons and pads. Chris actually films the event of Carrie being bullied and uploads it to YouTube. And this sequence is also broadcasted on the walls of the gymnasium during prom when the blood dump happens. So it also obviously plays a purpose to have Carrie relive that trauma through a digital means, which I still don't think it was used to its best effect. We can talk about that. Carrie saves Coach and Sue from the fire more proactively. And then there is a arc of Sue being pregnant with Tommy's baby, which is present in the book. Really? Yes, it was a subplot in the book. I I did read about that, Mm -hmm. but um, they just did not adapt that into the original, but they brought it for the remake. So it's not random. It was actually always there, but... It didn't feel super random. What felt random to me was when Sue showed up at Carrie's house. So we don't get the hand reaching up from the ground at the end. Mm -mm. We get a... The tombstone cracks. Yeah, a tombstone crack. But I mean, good that you don't try to recreate that because you just, you can't recreate that. You're right. So what do you think about, in terms of like the departures, what do you think was like a welcome update? What do you think, you know, maybe missed the mark? I liked the mom's characterization and I liked the point you made about how she used her sort of masochism as a manipulative tool. I think that that was really interesting and I think underlined even more so the like emotional immaturity of the mother. Like before it's just, oh, Carrie's mother is a religious fanatic and she doesn't know how to be anything else. 
But now it's like we see almost parts of that coded as emotional immaturity, maybe using it as a cloak for some of the parts of herself she doesn't want to acknowledge. She's much more versatile. She's more likable in a weird way. The depth of their relationship, like there is that tenderness and that love there despite the manipulation and the pain and the abuse. So I really like that element of complexity. Also, I do like that Sue and Tommy have more obvious motives. Tommy made me uncomfortable in this movie. In the original movie, I liked him. In this one, he made me uncomfortable, and I felt like that made more sense. Not that the original Tommy and his angelic intentions can't be real, but it just didn't seem like it made any sense. It didn't seem like it came from anywhere real, but this made sense and I liked that. I did like that Miss Desjardins, I like that she lived, but I don't like Miss Desjardins in this movie as much as I like her in the original movie. I like the original Miss Collins better. I don't know, maybe if it's just her actions fit much more in the time period. I do like Miss Desjardins almost cornering of Chris a little more, mm. where like there is also a scene, like we're not going over the plot because it's legitimately the same. Like, yeah. there's, <laughs> like it's legitimately beat by beat the same movie, mm-hmm. but there is an inclusion of a scene where Chris brings her lawyer daddy into the principal <laughs> to try to reinstate her prom privileges over Miss Desjardins' head because Miss Desjardins does not slap Chris in this movie when she does in the original, mm. but you know, I think she calls her shitty or something like that. And like, she just trying oh, yeah, to use, She says, like, what you girls did was shitty. And then Chris tries to say like, that was abusive language or something, whatever. But that's where Miss Desjardins like, well, there's a video of the incident on YouTube. And if that was on your phone, that would really impact like mm. college admissions and future employment opportunities. So um, as long as you show us your phone and prove that it wasn't you who uploaded it, then there shouldn't be a problem. But Chris refuses to do that because she obviously was the person who uploaded the video. Which, again, is, I think, a thing that fell so short for me with this movie. Because Mm. it doesn't make sense that even though Carrie was homeschooled and has the mother that she does, that they do not have any engagement with online anything. Right. Like, they don't have a computer. (laughs) Obviously, Carrie doesn't have a phone. But, like, Carrie is not impacted by this video being uploaded to YouTube at all. Mm -hmm. Except for when it's broadcasted during the blood dump scene. Which I think there could have been a lot to do with like cyberbullying or even like you could have made Margaret almost like a Facebook evangelist, you know, where she's like doing live streams and trying to like, you know, like those, just those people on Facebook that just post those long statuses in all caps. You know what I mean? Like (laughs) that would have been so 2010s. -hmm. So it's like, instead of going door to door, like, like I understand you maybe being more private about it and like being less fanatical about it and bringing her down a notch. But how about you move it to the online space And then maybe she could have seen the video and maybe there could have been more interaction Mm. about that. Like they just don't utilize it in a meaningful way, like the technology in a meaningful way whatsoever, except for that adding punch to the blood scene, which already has enough punch. Right. And then I had a thought about how 2013 had a really great opportunity, especially because of all the things that were going on in the country to use Carrie's vengeance on her classmates as an allegory for school shooters. Oh, 
because this is exactly the trope of the bullied outcast taking vengeance on the people that tormented them and having that be an explanation or an excuse for everyone dying. She kills so many people in the prom scene and a lot of them weren't even the ones that inflicted the harm. They're just random bystanders that are just there to be teenagers, right? Like, this is exactly the trope of the bullied outcast finally snapping and just losing control and doing something. And that's not the case for school shooters, obviously. Like, school shooters know what they're doing. And even though if there's mental illness in play, like, that trope is pretty much used to excuse whiteness. Mm -hmm. And we know that. But, like, 2013, like what was happening during that time. Like, there hasn't been a shortage of school shootings since Columbine, especially in the United States. This would have been an awesome opportunity because there's nothing different about the storyline. So, like, why don't you maybe tap into that a little bit more? You had a lot of things you could have worked with that you just, you kept it like a carbon copy with just better slash digital effects and a new cast. Right. So, like, what did you actually do? Interesting. That's a really interesting point. Because Carrie does remain so relevant. And why would it remain relevant to audiences in 2013? And almost again, 10 years after that. You could have been the first unfriended, kind Mm -hmm. of. Like, you could have been ahead of the, like, cyberbullying game. Or you could have really taken something like school violence, and you didn't. But yeah, like there are a couple of changes, but none of them are actually explored. And I can see how they could have been used more productively for a 2013 audience. Otherwise, in both movies, they still characterize prom similarly. It's a fairy tale experience. The idea of that every girl wants to go to prom, this ugly duckling to swan transformation. Not a great remake. It's not a bad movie, but it's not a great remake because they didn't do enough differently. Well, Prom Night 2008, on the other hand, Fuck this movie. did everything differently. It has a 7% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah. Essentially, the premise is our girl, Brittany Snow, who plays Donna, gets home one night from being dropped off by a friend, gets in the house, and somebody has gotten in the house, has murdered her father. She finds her dead little brother, hides under the bed when she hears a noise, and then ends up witnessing her mother be murdered by a teacher of hers, Mr. Fenton. He does not know she is there, but she witnesses the murder. He ends up not getting put away full time. He gets an insanity plea granted and he gets sent away to some sort of institution. However, on her senior prom night, she's now living with her aunt and uncle. It comes out that he has escaped. Which is the only thing that's really similar between the original prom night and the remake is that there is a traumatic event. There is a time jump. There is an escaped prisoner situation and then a repeat of a traumatic event. But other than that, there is no like killer kids. There is no brother reveal. This is just a straight slasher that takes place at a prom in a hotel. Yeah, and we can really see here the opulence and excessiveness of a modern prom. This hotel that this event is taking place at is gorgeous. It's huge. It seems like kids are very easily able to get rooms at this hotel, which is, you know, not something that I think is very realistic. Anyway, kids have rooms at this hotel. They are easily able to go up to their room, come back down to the venue, get away from the dance floor, come back. So it seems like they really have a lot of control and free reign over how they spend their time. 
which again, at a typical prom, I don't think is really the case. I think like chaperones and teachers try to keep kids really central so they can keep an eye on things and make sure that nobody is up to no good and that people stay safe. And this is similar to prom night in that all of this basically happens with the exception of the flashback in the same day. Mm -hmm. Donna's prom dress, I don't think it's an accident that it resembles a wedding dress. It's a champagne color. It has some beading, just a couple shades darker than white. She is our final girl that maintains a lot of quote-unquote purity. We do not see her engaging in any sexual activity, but her friends, her girlfriends who do engage in that activity do end up dying. Also, unlike Prom Night, the original, our killer is very obvious to us the whole time. We know it's Mr. Fenton, and we know his whereabouts at all times. And that's very different from the mystery that shrouds Alex in the original Prom Night. And Mr. Fenton sucks. Like, something about him is he always has to, like, jump out of the closet. Like, (laughs) what is his deal with the closet? He loves the closet. Even when he's in the bathroom and could just open the door and get the person wiggling the handle so easily and add them to his body count as he slowly kills off teenagers throughout the night, he, like, sneaks around. This kind of reminds me of When a Stranger Calls. <laughs> In that way, that's like, why do you have to be sneaking around like this the whole time? Like, aren't you here for a reason? Get your job done. There's a lot of, it feels like, mindless creeping and sneaking and movement that doesn't necessarily feel justified for the action of the movie. At least the stranger in A Stranger Calls, he wants to get off on that cat and mouse, True. like the calling. And like mm-hmm. like that's part of his MO where, yeah, Mr. Fenton is not getting to the point. He's killing bellhops that he doesn't need to kill. Like he had no reason yeah. to kill the bellhop. I understood what he had to kill the maid because you needed the MasterCard. I get it. But, like, you right. didn't need to really kill Mike or Claire. Mm-mm. Claire and Mike, they were, like, nothing characters. Also, why is Mike carrying a bourbon the entire time? Yeah. He's walking around with bourbon. And, yeah, he has a flask, but, like, everyone's drinking out of rocks glasses. Like, I don't understand. I will say, at the prom that I just helped plan, the venue had mocktails for everybody. Okay. Now, while those drinks were in, like, uh, highball glasses. Right. Not quite as obvious as a very little filled <laughs> rock like glass, rock yeah. glass. That does feel a little bit like maybe he could get away with that. I love the part where the gym teacher who was chaperoning, which by the way, why was she the only chaperone? <laughs> like, right. What? She like finds a whole bottle of whiskey in some dude's coat, takes it, and then just lets him walk into the venue anyway. It's like, no, no, no. That kid is going home. Like, you can't just like try to smuggle in a whole bottle of alcohol, get caught, and then get to have your nice night anyway. Like, I don't know. But yeah, so as the night goes on, Fenton obviously gets a master key. So he's able to basically spend all of his time in room 312, which is where the three couples... Donna and her boyfriend, Lisa and her boyfriend, Ronnie. And then Claire and Michael are supposed to spend the night. Claire and Michael are the first to go. They're fighting over their relationship. Mike is toxic. He is toxic. He's jealous. He is jealous. It's kind of like the moment of like, try not to be the girl crying in the bathroom at prom night. Try not to be the boy crying in the bathroom at prom night. It's not that deep. Ronnie ends up surviving, but there's also that weird scene where Ronnie persuades Lisa to go upstairs with him right before prom king and queen are announced, and he tries to have sex with her and then gets upset when she, like, doesn't want to get down and dirty, but it's like, dude, like, they're literally about to announce prom court. Like, wait 10 minutes. Also, he has a ring. 
Oh, wait, I forgot about that. He was going to propose to her. Motherfucker, you guys are 18. Maybe. 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 You might even be 17. Maybe. Why don't you relax? I know. Like, <laughs> he was horny the entire fucking night. Like, he was laying the compliments on thick. He had a song dedicated to Lisa throughout mm-hmm. the night. Like, he was ready to fucking go. But I'm like, first of all, I understand that these sweets are expensive, but like if you want to get boned on prom night, you probably shouldn't get a sweet with your two other couple friends. Yeah, I couldn't tell like were there like three separate bedrooms? I couldn't I tell so. where the beds were. Yeah, I was kind of confused. Also like wait until the night is over. Lisa's talking about prom court the whole night. Yes. Like she's not going to be interested in this timing that you have proposed to her. I did appreciate how this update shows how seriously teenagers take themselves mm. and how they think like, <laughs> she, you know, Lisa goes on this tirade because there's this antagonist. I forget what her name is. Chrissy. Yes, Chrissy. There's this antagonist like her and Lisa are like going at it about who's going to win prom queen all night. And Donna is like, well, why do you even want this? Like, why do you want it? And she's like, well, it's like the respect of my peers. And then everyone laughs at her. And she's like, well, I just kind of want to be able to hold it over Chrissy's head that I want. And she did. And for the rest of our lives. And I'm like, you're not going to think about this for the rest of your lives. It does kind of put in a vacuum that feeling when you're 18 that you think like this is the most important thing that you're ever going to go through when it's not. Doesn't end up mattering because Mike and Claire and Lisa all end up getting killed before prom court gets announced. And then as prom court is getting announced or the winners are going to be announced, the detectives who are on the case of Donna and the escaped felon arrive on scene, pull the fire alarm. They all get evacuated. As they're getting evacuated, Donna does some bonehead shit. <laughs> Because she has this shawl from her mother who was murdered. And I think if she thinks if the place is on fire, she doesn't want it to perish because it's sentimental. But she takes the fucking elevator, which the elevator wouldn't be working. It's so, it doesn't make any sense. It's dumb. But that allows her to go and get like cornered by the killer who like Jack Torrance's his way through a door. Mm-hmm. But then like she finds the detectives, but then the guy escapes because he wears the bellhop costume. And then like her and her boyfriend are at the aunt and uncle's house. Dreams are kind of like an unexplored theme here. It opens with a dream sequence of her having the flashback. We have another flashback where she dreams of being found by the killer. And then she wakes up and goes through the same sequence again. But instead of being found by the killer in the bathroom at the end of this sequence where she goes to take her anxiety meds, She's okay. She gets back to the room and then finds that her boyfriend has been murdered. Bobby. Then she hears somebody creeping in the hallway. So she hides in the closet. But we know Idris Elba is the detective on the scene. That's probably him coming through the house. And she's probably just found herself in the closet with the killer. And guess what? She does. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I don't know. And then I don't even know what to say. Her aunt and uncle live. Her boyfriend dies, her best friend Lisa dies, and then her two other friends die. Ronnie is just left out to dry. He is left out to dry with an engagement ring that I don't know where he found the money to buy. I guess he's been putting in a lot of hours at his part-time job. That's the end. Like, Fenton is shot six times. Oh, yes. By Idris Elba. Because there's a scuffle... Brittany Stowe fends him off, and then Idris Elba comes in and saves the day and shoots the guy six times. And then the movie ends. And that's it. I like the original prom night so much better in that I feel like the killer makes so much more sense. 
And even though like the killer's relationship to his siblings isn't really explored, you can assume what that is because they're siblings. But in this movie, the killer is, I guess, some kind of crazed, obsessed teacher. But like none of that is explored. I just don't understand why this teacher is so insane. Like why? Is that a trope that just doesn't need explaining anymore? <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, it's not even like there was anything to suggest that there was any kind of mutual yeah. interest or relationship. Like, it literally is just like this guy was obsessed and that was it. But something I did like about the movie was the acknowledgement that prom is kind of sad. I like that too, that it's sentimental uh-huh. and people get in their feelings being like, we're going to be friends forever when mm-hmm. like you, you won't. Prom is meant to be a celebration, but it's also like an end. It's not only cool, look at all this we did and we get to do now because we're growing up. It's also, oh my gosh, like we are on the verge of whatever the next step is. And that pattern will continue and continue and continue. I feel like graduation and the events leading up to graduation, like junior prom and senior prom are like the first indications that you're about to enter into a constant pattern of stops and starts that a lot of kids, I'm not saying all kids, but a lot of kids haven't experienced yet. And sometimes it just feels so deep because prom and the events surrounding prom feel like, you know, it's the only time you're going to experience an emotion like that. Or it's the first time you're going to experience an emotion like that. And anytime you're traveling somewhere new emotionally, it can feel overwhelming or confusing. And I like that this movie kind of mentions that. And I like that it focuses on the friend group, even though things get kind of muddled and weird. We had talked about earlier the pageantry, like it heightens the actual pageantry of current prom trends. So like comparing dresses, expensive venues, limos, drinking, selfies with the digital camera, with Mm. the flash, like it's all there. It's all there. Even though it's a shitty movie in a bastardized remake, it serves a purpose in like actually being the most true to current form of what prom looks like. I agree. I love that and kind of like bringing this full circle, like the focus that prom has always had on women, I think makes it work really well in the horror movie genre because the horror movie genre is something that has consistently from the beginning focused on women for the better or for the worse. And prom for better or for worse is something rooted in women, promenading women, focusing on them for the sake of marriage or their next step. And as meanings change over time, that's fine. You know, things don't mean the same, but they come from the same place. And I think that it makes sense for some of these iconic horror movies like Carrie and Prom Night to be so focused on women and their experiences at prom. So that's prom. That is prom. We had a blast talking about prom memories, some poetry, obviously (laughs) some great contenders into the next March Madness episode with all of these amazing heroines and batches to include. We (laughs) enjoyed it a lot. And yeah, we thought it was really timely. You know, like Elise said, she just hosted a prom. (laughs) And we know it's prom season. It's prom season. It's a sentimental time. And obviously, like horror has its place. So we were so happy to be able to cover these movies. I know Carrie was on our list for a long time. So like, but we're always happy to revisit Jamie Lee Curtis. Let's Mm -hmm. be honest. And hopefully we'll get to again with whatever that train movie is. Terror Train, (laughs) yeah. We love an alliteration. We do. We don't know what we're doing next. We don't. But we are back 
in the same regional area. Hmm. So the viewing parties and the recordings are going to be in full swing. But if you have anything that you're interested in hearing from us this summer, definitely feel free to email us at thehorrors with a W at gmail.com. And that would be the horrors podcast. Oh, so sorry. At gmail. It's okay. I've forgotten it. You've forgotten it. Or find us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. And if you would like to stay up to date with our release schedule, because sometimes it varies, definitely follow us on Instagram because we'll do our best to keep you posted with new episodes, engage you with polls on occasion. So that's the main place to keep up to date with what's going on with us. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.